it going. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Strategy Inside Everything. Uh, if you're noticing different audio or recording from a new location, but uh, same great conversations we hope to have. And in fact, this one should be a really, really good one. I was listening to uh, the show that this, this gentleman, our first guest uh, of the year, produces called Video Palace and reached out to him immediately. And I wanted to talk to him about uh, not just the show, but about his ideas around uh, the power and the potential of audio as a format, uh, which I think is uh, very interesting. Uh, Mr. Ben Rock, who is the co-writer and director of Video Palace, has uh, graciously made time to join us from his uh, travels. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Like I said, I found you from um, Video Palace, and then I realized that we have a common friend who's Mike Manello, who uh, was on our show while he was doing recording and mixing of Video Palace, but was very coy. Uh, he told me <laughs> he was working on something, but he didn't tell me what it was until... Oh. You and I found it. On, while, while we were doing Video Palace, he was working on uh, a giant thing for the Purge at Comic-Con, like literally at the exact same time. So I, 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 I hope that I hope Video Palace was the secret thing, but I bet it was that. I bet, I, or maybe it was both. And I think if I remember the conversation correctly, I believe he mentioned that. So yeah, I think it was like right around that same time and he was trying to do final mixing yeah. and, and everything. But um before we before we dive in, why don't you give people a sense of kind of how you got to where you are and and uh, a little history of of Ben Rock? Well, uh, I actually started out as a special effects makeup artist, uh, believe it or not, and uh, I uh, went to the University of Central Florida to study film because I wanted to be a director. But I was at the time I was actually getting work on like super low budget movies in in Mobile, Alabama, for a director named David Pryor who, who passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, I was doing makeup and, and stuff like that. And uh, that's where I met Mike. Mike uh, was uh, uh, two years ahead of me at the University of Central Florida. And uh, in about 1997, a couple of years after I graduated, um, I decided to quit being a makeup artist. And right around that time, uh, a producer named Greg Hale, who also went to UCF, um, asked me if I would join the team to create uh, a movie that ended up becoming the Blair Witch Project, which Mike also worked on. I, I'm, I'm kind of understating uh, what a positive influence Mike has been in my life in general. Mike didn't get me on Blair Witch, but Mike actually like got me the job that was sustaining me while I was working on Blair Witch at a, at a local art house movie theater where he was the uh, marketing director. At the time. Oh, cool. And, and I sort of feel like Mike is just one of those, uh, like one of those people who has uh, just, consistently been like uh I, I hope i can pay him back one time at some point in my life because he's he's just always been an enormous help but anyway so um uh, on the blair witch project the first thing i was tasked to do before we even before there was a movie in in 1996 uh was to write the backstory basically uh ed ed sanchez and dan meyer who were the co-directors co-writers on it had sort of created a sketch of the uh of the mythology and they brought me on to kind of flesh it out because they knew I was a nerd for paranormal related stuff <laughs> and uh, when the and, and so I, I uh, you know it's 1996 so I had to go to a library you know, I went to the Orlando Public Library many days and kind of poured over old images and old legends and stuff like that went through my old back issues of 40 and Times magazine and whatnot oh yeah and, I remember uh, it well and, and, oh, I still subscribe and um and uh, it's, I, I subscribe to two magazines, American Cinematographer and 40 in Times. I still get like the hard magazine. Anyway, um, 
so I, I created kind of this backstory and you can find this whole story online later, but like I, I basically wrote the copy that became sort of the pitch tape that ended up getting into the hands of John Pearson who flipped for it all and, uh, and put it on his show split screen and then hired us to make another segment of split screen. And, and between the two segment fees of that, which I think were like $7,500 each or something like that, that was like, 15,000 of the 25,000 that was used to make Blair Witch. And so uh, they brought, they made me the production designer and probably the one thing that uh, people in the genre world would know me for, if, if, if at all, is that I designed the stick man uh, figure for, for Blair Witch. Oh, but that's kind of, that's a really cool time, claim to fame. It is. It is. I, I'll spend the rest of my life trying to do something more interesting, but um, at the time I thought they all hated it and I didn't know that they liked it until I saw it on the, on the poster you can actually find footage online of Ed Sanchez telling me that it just looks like a pile of sticks tied together. And I look absolutely crestfallen. <laughs> apparently, apparently it was just messing with me. Um, anyway. Um, uh, so I worked on that right around that. Like, so we made that movie in 1997, two years later, I moved uh, to Los Angeles. The rest of the crew kind of stayed back in Florida. Mike eventually moved to New York. Um, but because uh, we were all based out of Orlando when we made that movie, and uh, I moved out here, and um, or out here, I'm in Ohio right now. I moved to Los Angeles, the out here in my heart, <laughs> and um, and, um, and because of Blair Witch, that that actually opened some doors for me, and I actually got my my uh, foot in the door directing, and uh, I directed. Uh, um, well, first I wrote Curse of the Blair Witch for Sci-Fi Channel, which was a special that came out right before the movie came out. Ed and Dan directed that in Orlando. And then those guys were all off to the races making other stuff. And, and I was in L.A. Uh, answering phones for a living. So I jumped at the chance to uh, write and direct a special for Blair Witch when it premiered on Showtime, which is called the Burkittsville 7. And to this day is probably the weirdest thing anyone's ever hired me to make. Uh, and I'm very proud of it. And, uh, and then I made another one for this for... Uh, Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, called yep. Shadow of the Blair Witch, which was a lot more me doing what the distributor wanted. Like, like they told me what they wanted the special to be, and I did as as close to that as I could, Got and it. still kind of have, have some integrity. But to kind of connect to Video Palace, like Curse of the Blair Witch, uh, Birkinsville 7, Shadow of the Blair Witch, and also a TV special I did for the first Hellboy movie called the BPRD Declassified, all kind of use a technique that I can go into later if you want, which is sort of how I make interviews sound as authentic as possible, how I, I give the actors the tools to to kind of properly elaborate and to make interviews sound really awesome. And I don't know if I invented this technique, but nobody taught it to me. I, like, I figured it out on my own at least. Oh yeah, um, we are going to dive into for that Chris, for Crystal Blair Witch. But like since then, I did uh, I directed a movie for Warner Brothers called Alien Raiders. I hate the title, but I'm proud of the movie. Um, um, <coughs> pardon me. You're good. Um, and um, uh, the guy who I who I uh, co-wrote um, Video Palace with Bob Derosa, he and I and a producer named Kat Paziak uh, created a, uh, a web series called 20 Seconds to Live that we've been doing for a few years. We have four new episodes that we're trying desperately to finish right now. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of, you know, keep uh, the lights on, uh, you know, freelance directing commercials or I do a lot of freelance editing as well. Like I do a bunch of different stuff. I did not know 20 Seconds to Live was you. Okay. Oh, are you familiar with it? 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I, I literally was like, oh, Video Palace, I want to talk to this guy. And as you're, as, you're, as you're describing and as I was reading about you, I was like, oh, he does all these other things that I've liked as well. So this is really, <laughs> this is really cool. Oh, I keep super busy. But yeah, yeah, 20 Seconds to Live is, you know, kind of a passion project that Bob and I uh, have been doing for a while. And, you know, it's kind of an anthology, horror comedy anthology. And Yeah, uh, that's my know. sweet spot. Oh, yeah. Mine too. I love it. Ever since I saw uh, Evil Dead, I think I saw Evil Dead 2 before I saw Evil Dead 1. Uh, and mm-hmm. ever since I saw that, that, that combination of, of laughs at ridiculous, gory situations has, has really lit me up. I, I also saw Evil Dead 2 before I saw Evil Dead 1. And uh, yeah, uh, but, but uh, I, saw, I, I probably saw them around the same time. I saw them both on VHS a million years ago. Yeah, and within a week of each other, but still. Yeah. Once you saw one, you were like, yeah, let's go, go, go. Somebody pointed out Evil Dead is like one of the only horror franchises I can think of that there is not one bad entry. There, there isn't, there isn't one movie like you know. There's, there's the original three movies, and then there's the remake movie, and then there's the TV series. Like all of them are great. Like yeah, the remake was good too. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it was missing the flavor of Bruce Campbell, but and Sam Raimi, but it was great on its own terms, and it was you know like I, I, I loved it. I had a blast. Anyway. Yeah, sorry, we got a little bit tangential as you get to talk to two guys who are geeks about horror, so that's going to happen. I will tell right. you. <laughs> um, let's talk Video Palace. So if, uh, if you're listening to this and you haven't heard Video Palace, um, I don't want to give it away for you, but what you should do is go listen. It is worth it. I promise if you listen to the first episode, you're going to listen to the whole series, uh, at least the, the entire season that's been released so far. And I have a feeling there's another season coming, Ben, or? Uh, has yet. I mean, uh, I'm not. I'm not trying to withhold information. Uh, we have not been given a green light on the second season, but we know that Shutter is very happy with the first season. So, who knows? Cool, cool. Well, it actually that kind of dovetails into the conversation that I was hoping to have because um, the world you've created lends itself to a lot of different places. Like, um, if you haven't listened to it, uh, just as a quick recap, uh, there's a person who is purportedly. Uh, it's a fiction podcast where somebody is making a podcast about uh, things he finds weird and he stumbles on these people who collect uh, movies. They collect VHS tapes or actually movies of all kinds, but mostly VHS tapes. And he kind of stumbles into this community where they've been collecting these secret kind of tapes called the white tapes. And he gets his hand on one of these things and they're sort of these legendary tapes. And as he learns more and more about them, he gets pulled into this uh, uh it's not a conspiracy, but the secret cabal of people that are hoarding yeah. these tapes, and we don't know why. There's a, little, a little conspiracy, a little HP Lovecraft, a little whatever. And also, I just like to say that, like, if you want to hear it, it's all on wherever you listen to podcasts. Gloriously free, you can listen yeah. to all of it. You can go to Shutter and listen to it there. Where Shutter, it was made for Shutter, the uh, streaming video on demand service. But you don't have you don't have to have Shutter. You don't have to subscribe to anything. You can just get it on iTunes or I, I listen on Downcast. That's my my podcast app. So uh, I'm a big uh, overcast guy. Yeah. I've thought about switching. I hear it's good. I like downcast. I mean, I don't know. Just moving from one podcast uh, client to another is a pain in the butt. Anyway. It is, yeah, but, um, but as, as each episode came, I would move it to the top of my queue and I would listen to it as, as uh, immediately as I could. Cause I like oh, really sweet. couldn't wait. It, it doesn't, oh, it wasn't a major cliffhanger show, but it gave you enough threads in the end of each one to make you say, oh, I got to figure out what's going to happen here. And that's true with the season itself. Like um, 
it wraps up kind of in a tidy bow, right? I understand what happened. Um, I think I do. And if, if that was just a single season, that was pretty satisfying for me. You know, the, what is it? Eight episodes, 10 episodes. It's 10 episodes. Yeah. So I felt like, okay, that's self-encapsulated. If it ends here, I feel like that was a great gift that I was given to, to hear that story. Um, however, I could hear just the way it's like left off and having the rhythm of the other episodes, my brain was like, Oh, but now I could take the story here or there or there and start mapping that out. Now, well, we created a a mythology like Bob DeRosa and I, who co-wrote it together, we created kind of a, a, a deeper mythology um, that we hope we we're kind of like setting uh, the bait in a, we're, we're, we're baiting a bunch of hooks, I guess, really um, to pull into, into various different directions. So it's not just the one story thread that we're following here, which is the Mark, uh, Mark Cambria and Tamara Wolf story, the two main characters this season, but there are other doorways we kind of just left cracked open and just enough that we could go down a lot of them. So if we had a second season or, you know, when, um, so, so just real quick, like it was Mike Manello, Mike Manello and Nick uh, Braccia had the idea originally and they had the connection to shutter. Um, and they brought it to us to see if we'd be interested in, in kind of creating it. And they, so they kind of come up with a basic idea and they mapped out kind of a rough version of season one. And Bob, uh, Bob, who has kind of extensive episodic television writing experience, um, you know, he, he sort of <laughs> led the, uh, the writer's room of two, him and myself, and it was literally like corkboard and index cards, and we kind of mapped out every episode. And, yeah. and uh, you know, there was, we would use different colors to kind of code different things, but we wanted to make sure that we were tracking the relationship of the two main characters. That was very important to us. Um, that we were tracking a little bit about the mythology of the white tapes. And then uh, the third, the third thread, probably the most important thread was the plot that we're following. So right. you know, he, he, it's a mystery. So he's gone from one clue and then usually not really solving that clue, but, you know, opening up a, a, a deeper Pandora's box each time, he, you know, he, he gets to the next level. And, um, and so, you know, our main character is kind of like discovering more and more horrible, terrible things, but he's becoming obsessed as we go along. Right. And so his obsession kind of pulls him through it all, but we had to keep his relationship alive. We had to kind of, we kind of had to have a constant drip, drip, drip of the mythology so that, um, so it didn't just sound arbitrary. Like we're not just making up random scary stuff for no good reason. There's there's a a reason for everything. Well, it feels very intentional. How much of the mythology did you write for this that you didn't use? Like how much backstory when you were talking about Blair Witch, it sounds like you wrote quite a bit of backstory and quite a bit yeah. of a legend that doesn't make it to film. And in this case, doesn't make it to audio to help make, give you guys the context you need to, to take bites of the story. Uh, I mean, I think here's the thing, like we were contacted about possibly doing this right around the time my son was born. <laughs> my son was born on May the 4th. And it was maybe like two weeks, three weeks before that, that Mike and Nick reached out to me to see if, if Bob and I would be interested in doing this. And uh, then we started working when he was like three weeks old. And and uh, <laughs> so he was he was born on, in May. We probably started working on this in June, and we delivered everything uh, at the beginning of September. So that's a, so. In that period of time, we wrote ten episodes, which was 183 pages, and. 
um, you know, many, many drafts of the, you know, indexed cards on cork boards to kind of get to, to get to the basis of those scripts. And also, you know, obviously notes from Mike and Nick, notes from Shutter, stuff had to be addressed, you know, notes from each other, rewriting each other. So we, and then, um, so in answer to your question, it's like we created just enough mythology that it, I would say, like, I'd love to have a 10 level mythology and we maybe are like three levels deep right now. And it's because, we had to, we just had to write it very quickly, you know, like we just didn't have a, we didn't have an abundance of time to work. Um, so, um, in, in lieu of having lots and lots of time, we, uh, we, we, we made them, we we kind of (laughs) did for ourselves what we did for the audience. It's like, we left a lot of doors open, like, okay, this can happen. That can happen. You know, we could, we could, we could deepen this. And we, I mean, the hardest part I think is just kind of creating, what the idea of the mythology is like what it's all focused towards and um and how everything going in here ties together so the various like you know there's a certain i'll say creature that shows up at a certain point in the in the season and you know what does what does that creature do and how do they function within the story and where do they come from like we've got answers to all of that okay yeah so that's that's part of my that's part of my question i don't want to be fanboy out but i just wanted to know to me it feels like it's a big question and i always wonder um does the author know the answer to that or did the author put in put that in as a uh placeholder for for some other you know that we'll figure that out later if we get to season two type deal I mean, I won't say that it is without placeholders, but um, but I, it, it, we really tried to not have anything that's sort of audience facing, any 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 real audience specific moment where we didn't really have an answer to it. Like it's not. I, I would feel like we were not doing our jobs if we did that. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, that's that's the question. That's perfect. So, do you think um, I have read uh, an article that had quotes from you, and it was about how um, audio and podcasting in particular is a great place for developing and testing IP. Uh, And I wanted to pick your brain about that a little bit because obviously this is a podcast. It doesn't, there's not really any IP attached to it. Um, But I think (laughs) people who listen to this probably listen to other shows. And um, as I was listening to Video Palace and there's a few other um, uh, shows, Gimlet has a couple of fiction shows, um, that, that are being converted into television shows, you know, I was, my, my, I was visualizing it as I was listening to it. And so I wonder uh, what you guys were thinking as you were going through it. Um, well, uh, definitely that was something Mike and Nick kind of brought to the table when they brought us on, which is that, um, and I don't think I'm speaking of school here when I say, I think Shudder is looking to develop uh, IP and, you know, the, I, I probably shouldn't talk about our specific budget, but I will say it wasn't much. Um, but also like, you know, our staffing needs were lower. So, you know, uh, the, the budget wasn't great, but it was, you know, it was, it was all right for what we were doing. Um, um, and for that budget, they got about three hours worth of content. Right. Um, you know, you would have had to have gone to 10 or 20 times our budget to make one, one hour pilot that was kind of up to network standards. Right. Uh, I mean, you could go less. I mean, you could certainly go way less, but um, you know, there, there are shows on, on, you know, various cable networks that are, you know, that work well 
at a lower budget. Like I'm thinking about, I don't know what the budget is, but like Stand Against Evil, which on Danny Gould's podcast, he kind of talks about it, not having the biggest budget ever and they have to shoot it really quickly. Um, but, you know, the idea here is like, you know, so, so Shudder is owned by AMC Networks and AMC Networks has things like The Walking Dead and Breaking Bad. And those things create are amazing IP. And, you know, like when Breaking Bad wrapped up, I remember thinking like, wow, it's too bad they can't spin it off into something. And then Better Call Saul, you know, turns out to be like one of the best shows on television. Oh, it's so good. And, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, The Walking Dead, you know, they have Fear of the Walking Dead and they can probably keep doing it. Uh, now I hear they're talking about doing a Nick Grimes or a Rick Grimes uh, movie. Yep. Um, you know, like they can keep that franchise alive in many different ways going on and on. And Shut even Shutter is like uh, about to do a TV adaptation of uh, Creepshow, George Romero's Creepshow which I'm extremely excited about. And, um, you know, so they're looking for that kind of stuff. So whether it's Video Palace or, you know, their 10th try, the idea is to, like, you is to create a story world that's broad enough that, you know, you could, if you wanted to, within the world of Video Palace, you could make a standalone movie or you could make, uh, you know, a, a, um, a limited, I don't know if it's a limited series so they might do a second season, but, like, uh, they're shorter episodes uh, series like they did with Dead Wax, um, or you could do a web series, or you could do you know whatever you wanted. You could do a comic book, right? Um, you you could spin this into into different mediums. Yeah, well, so you you if, brought up uh, The Walking Dead too, which uh, was started as a pretty low budget black and white comic. You know, the first the first edition yeah. of it that that was a pretty low budget way to. I mean, he wasn't Kirkland wasn't writing that to test IP. I think he just had the story to tell, but. Um, that was a pretty good way to say, oh, people are interested in this. The story is good. Let's, let's see what we can do with the pilot. Well, and as far as like our involvement, all, all of us on, on the production side of it and the creation side, like it's all well and good to think Shudder wants to test an IP and, and maybe broaden it out so we can create something. On the, on, at the very beginning, you kind of think about how could this spin into something else. But at a, at a certain point, you kind of have to just buckle down and say, I'm only making this podcast and I need to make this podcast the awesomest it can be, or there will be no other thing anyway. And there, and I'm not saying this, this isn't about shutter. This is about the world in general. There aren't usually spinoffs or, you know, like you, you can't count on that kind of thing unless it, you know, unless you have it in your contract. Right. Unless you're George so, Lucas. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's like if, if you're us making this, like, you know, at a certain point we had to say, well, we just need to make this the best thing it can be. But, you know, again, uh, not not to wax Bob DeRosa's car to uh, a finer polish, but, you know, Bob's um, experience in episodic television uh, came in enormously handy because, you know, like you talked about how it doesn't really end in a giant cliffhanger. Well, it couldn't really end in a giant cliffhanger because it's an ongoing mystery that we're trying to we're trying to have a level of verisimilitude. So. If, 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 you know, there was a giant, unbelievable cliffhanger, then it would feel forced in, in this kind of a world. You know, and we'd think about, like, you know, in the podcast Serial or S-Town or whatever, like, you know, they would save a juicy story beat for the end to make you want to listen to the next episode. Right. But, but you know, Adnan Syed couldn't be, have turned out to have been a werewolf all along. And, you know, like, you can't, you can't do that. So we were, like, <laughs> we're walking a weird line, even though we were telling a story that's kind of like verging on supernatural in a lot of, in a lot of areas, you know, it couldn't be like, we, we kept saying, you know, it's like that scene in the original Omen where the church steeple goes right through uh, is it Gregory Peck 
you know, and it's like perfectly framed shot of that moment. Well, we can't, we can't do that because we're not telling a third person omniscient story. We're telling a first person story. So the number of times that that moment could happen to, to our character before he, you know, dies or checks himself into a mental hospital is, you know, like one, one or two, you know, exactly. We get, you get a, get his ass kicked. He could, you know, be chased out of places. He could, find things that are super creepy you know he could he could find a tape that has a clue on it that's that's you know hopefully kind of uh bone chilling from a voice that he that you know of a person he can't interview you know those kinds of things and we and you know it, it, it took us a lot of work to kind of figure out what all those things would be but one of also one of the things that we were constantly talking about was how do you break up the audio sources and so even just sitting around and brainstorming like you know it can't just all be him talking into a microphone or it can't it can't be that plus his live audio on location like he's got to find other things and it was like oh it's answering machine tapes it's you yeah. know it's i have questions police. about the the answering machine tape for sure when we're done with the interview off <laughs> off, uh, off the recording i'll ask you that question um you you mentioned well i wanted to ask you about the the mythology um, sure so you said you, you only got to really flesh out three levels out of 10, which is, I'm sure is just a theoretical, uh, yeah, totally measurement, theoretical. It's a, but it's not. is it a blessing or a curse if, if you were planning this out strategically, like, okay, we're going to first record it for audio and then we hope it'll go and become a movie or a, a Sierra video series. Is it a blessing to have those other parts to yet flesh out? Or do you wish it was really all fleshed out already to help? I, I think it's okay to have it. I, I, I mean, I, either way would work. Um, you know, I mean, I feel like we, you know, before we ever made Blair Witch, like before we even shot any of it, we had worked out the entire timeline of the mythology of Blair Witch, you know, going back to the 1700s. Um, and, uh, you know, there was, there were adjustments that were made along the way, obviously to kind of that comported better with what we were making. But, um, but you know, we, we kind of stuck to it with this. I think, I think it's okay. But you know, like when the 2016 version of Blair, Witch came out, the, the one that Adam Wingard directed, um, like they made tweaks to the mythology cause they're gonna, you know, like you're going to tweak it anyway. You know, if they're, there's sort of the, uh, there's the minor tweaks and then there's like in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 when we find out that he's the son of a hundred maniacs or whatever. Right. You know, like, <laughs> the like, bastard like, son oh. of a thousand maniacs. Yes, well, I guess, yeah, sorry, I was about to get into the marriage politics of how Freddie <laughs> could have been married to all the maniacs at the same time, you know. Um, I, uh, but anyway, yeah, so you get it. Um, you know, the, like the Adam Wingard... Um, Blair Witch didn't didn't add that much to the mythology. It added a few interesting little things about, you know, the actual murder of Ellie Kedward and stuff like that. And you kind of go, eh, that's okay. With what we're doing, um, uh, let I, I don't I don't want to be too spoilery, but like there is uh, a a thing a thing that we created that was sort of our version of uh, Stranger Things is upside down, but it's multiple versions of the upside down that could kind of coexist in the same space uh, that we call the stack. And that kind of comes in way later. So sorry if that's a spoiler, but um, (laughs) I don't think you've given anything away. We've, we've only been sort of dealing with one of those realms and there are 
eight that we know of within the mythology. So we could basically make the other seven into whatever the hell we wanted. And there's even kind of a glimpse into one of them in one episode, but it, but it, we don't go into any real detail about what it is. Um, so, so uh, you know, those, those are the things where it's like we can sort of go off and, and create uh, and, and deepen those parts of the world. Um, and also there are like characters from our world who are just kind of mentioned in passing here and there. There's like four or five of them. Then all of them can come back and be part of the story um, later on. So to me, it's like, it, it was almost like an improv exercise where like a long form improv exercise where you kind of put a thought out there that you don't really have resolution for. And it works um, it works for a podcast like this because you're trying to create this sense of verisimilitude and in the real world there are things that are, are that go unresolved all the time that's life you know there are people who you know who just show up and they don't have a narrative purpose they're just there and you know you find that in a lot of podcasts where like uh, there's a podcast called In the Dark that I love and it was the thing I was listening to while, uh, while we were writing this I was listening to season two of it and there's like one episode where the um, the host finds a clue it's a it's a name on a post-it note on the side of a box from a police department and she spends i swear 20 minutes tracking down everyone on earth with that name except for the actual person that she's looking for and interview and interviews a few of them you're like wow like you know in a tv show or a movie there'd be like a montage of her showing up at five wrong places and then or probably two wrong places and then get to the real one you know, you're, we're allowed to have kind of these moments in something that's kind of mimicking true crime or true investigation, mystery, documentary, audio, where, you know, somebody shows up. But some of those people have been placed because we're going to do something else with them later if we get the opportunity. And if we don't, you know, whatever. It's all good. And do you, how much of the, the character, are you sprinkling those in there to give yourself new threads or is that with a plan or is it just like, Hey, for this scene, we need someone to help advance the story and we need some conversation that's going to help explain it. So he's going to meet someone that knows a little bit about the video palace or about the white tapes. I mean, some from column A, some from column B, you know, I mean, um, you know, there are characters who are mentioned in passing who maybe are bigger players in later story threads if we should choose to explore them. Um, you know, I, I think the the hard thing about a story like this is to keep the mystery alive and to give just enough answers. Like with every answer you get you get, you know, like one point five new questions. So there's always more questions than answers kind of building building up. And you're always kind of at the end you, you feel it's it's hard to make it feel satisfactory. Like I always think of the last episode of the TV show Lost, where I feel like they could there was no way they could have wrapped up that whole story. That story I'd watched every episode of Lost and there are entire characters that they get that they cliffhangered the end of shows on that never came back and were never resolved and never made any sense. We don't want to do that necessarily. Um but um, but we want to keep the questions alive and percolating. And, and you know, the character Tamara kind of says it towards the end. It's like the only thing you're going to keep finding is more questions. Right. And that's kind of the essence of, of, of a good mystery, right? Yeah, and well, I mean, that's what makes the show worth listening to because each time they, they nothing really gets solved as the story moves forward. You kind of you say, well, we didn't know this before, but now we need to know what that means. Exactly. You know, you 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 get to the solution of one question, and it and it is another ten mysteries. That's but, right. Uh, 
you know, but that's, that's what makes it fun, you know, and hopefully if we do our, if, if we're able to stick the landing, we can resolve enough of it. That the audience doesn't feel cheated, but also wants more at the same time. The sense of wanting more means there's more mystery there. The and, sense of not feeling cheated feels like this resolved. Yeah, know, exactly. Yeah. And you feel, it feels satisfying to get a little bit of information. I think where I got frustrated with the show, like lost is I never felt like I knew more. I had more information, but I never felt like I understood the world any better. Yeah. Yeah. It's cause I, I honestly think that they kind of left without a roadmap. Um, you know, cause they were great at creating new mysteries and they weren't as good at solving those mysteries. As yeah. I don't think they were but that I mean, interested you know, in that. It, it was a fun ride. I, I, I enjoyed it. I'm not trying to crap on it. And I think the people who made it are doing just fine. seems like they know what they're doing in storytelling. Um, what? Yeah. So, so you have this story, this compelling story. You created this mystery. Um, now, as far as turning that into the next thing, are you, are you keeping track of, of listens and audience metrics? Like what, what happens now? Um, as far as the metrics go, that's all on Shutter. You know, like we delivered all the episodes to Shutter. They are hosting it as a podcast on all the podcast servers, and also, you know, I'm sure that they have all of their uh, analytics and statistics and whatnot on how many people listen to it just on Shutter. Because when it was released on Shutter, you could listen to the whole season. It, it, the whole season was posted plus five bonus episodes. Uh, you know, the same day. Um, I think it was October 27th. And then um, for uh, for regular podcast listeners listening on you know iTunes or whatever, uh, they posted you know one episode a week. All right, no, excuse me, two episodes a week. It was two a week, Monday and Friday. And they never put the bonus episodes up on on there. And I you know maybe they will, maybe they won't. I don't know. The bonus episodes are there's a bunch of interviews with real people. Uh, you know Steve Barton, uh, Brian Collins, Eric Spudick, Sam Zimmerman, um, Adam Green. Um, they're all in the they're all in the first episode and, and we just kind of <clears throat> did a cut down version of all of their interviews um not very cut down you know like adam's interview adam adam green is a very verbose and brilliant creative guy and he basically gave us like 40 minutes of stuff to work with and we cut it down to like i think 30 or 20 minutes <laughs> um and, uh, you know, Sam Zimmerman, the same thing, you know, and it, it kind of goes into the technique I was talking about earlier about, um, how we create kind of authentic interviews and the way that works is uh, very briefly. And I can tell you more if you want to know, but I'll create a, a bio, like I'll write a bio for them. You know, it's like, you know, in the case of Steve Barton or Adam Green or Sam Zimmerman, they're real people. So they, they know who they are. And then I'll kind of give them like, you know, here's your story. And it's meant to be kind of an improv exercise where they, they kind of, read the story and then uh, ad lib off of it. Um, they, can, they can kind of ad lib off of, off of that story. They can kind of build on it, change it, whatever they want. And are um, you giving them a, like a, like a motivation? Like, or are you just saying, here's who the character is and now I'm going to ask you these questions and here's some context. And then they just, they riff on that. Uh, yeah, that's honestly what it is. It's, it's so it, it's, it's a bio. It's about two pages long. And so uh, I'm trying to th uh, think of a good, for instance, um, um, uh, I'm blanking on her name. Uh, I'm sorry. Holiday, holiday brain. Um, so let's say Kat, the, the, the woman who, uh, who composes all the music for Video Palace. 
who is, is actually all the music is actually composed by a real composer named Michael Tiller. But we have a woman, a, a character in it who is the person who's giving him the music, but also is kind of a uh, a uh, an audiophile and can and can kind of help them break stuff down. So for interviews with her, she would have a bio that she'd be able to read that was like you know the background of the devil's tone and the tritone and some of the stuff that we had in there, and um, and the woman who we hired uh, to play that part, her name is Anina Denovi. She happens to have a degree in music and she came in and blew our mind to the audition because she knew all they could add to it. Oh. And uh, so for instance, she, she says, she says a thing in there <laughs> that was just her kind of riffing, which is, you know, like, you know, the, the tritone, if, if you're like, uh, uh, I forget, it's like one half of a measure, not measure. If you're, slightly off of it in two directions it's like the perfect most pleasing tone and and how that is that kind of relates to the fragility between good and evil and when she said that like right after we cut bob was like why didn't i think of that like that's really brilliant. <laughs> um but luckily we get to take credit for all of it no, I, i'm happy to give her credit but you know she so she, she's you know so she's able to kind of riff in that way on on this uh on this thing and so we kind of get people who can do that like the woman who plays amber hutchins uh kelly holden bashir um, she's a brilliant, brilliant improviser. And she was also, by the way, she was in season one of Fargo. She played Martin Freeman's uh, wife. And, um, and she, uh, you know, it's like we gave her the whole story about going into the basement of the video palace back in the nineties and sort of what happened. But like the description of it, she, like she said something that I was like, we have to get that in because it's a perfect way to describe what it feels like right when you pass out. And I, I never would have come up with this. This is her description. She said the room went small. Mm. And and I remember when she said that, being like, you know, it kind of gave me a chill because, like, that's really how it feels when you're about to black out. Yeah. And and uh, and those are the nuggets that, like, you know, that's probably just how Kelly talks. You know, that's probably how she describes the situation. So she, we're not asking Kelly. I mean, I'm not saying that these actors aren't playing a character. Kelly is not like Amber Hutchins if you were in the room with her, um, but she's not playing a big exaggerated character. It's not stagey at all. It's very understated and real. And, you know, we would tell people at the audition that, like, the number one thing we're looking for is authenticity. Screw the script, butcher the script, all, all you want. Is there any of the dialogue scenes are written? But all the interview scenes were done like this. So they would just have a, a bio, and then Chase Williamson, who plays Mark Cambria, would just interview them. You know, and he'd have a few questions that I had pre-written, but then he would also ask his own questions. And some of those make the cut, you know, and, and it kind of creates a fuller experience, I think. Then you oh, end up cool. having to edit it like you would edit a real interview, which takes more time. Like if you script it, if, if you sit down and script it word for word, yeah, you'll get word for word what you want, but it'll sound like if I, if I wrote interview dialogue and gave it to you, um, you would say those words and, you know, if you're an amazing actor, you would do your best to sell them, but it would still sound like the way I put together a sentence, not the way Right, it would sound sentence. acted, it wouldn't sound yeah. live. Exactly. And so, so, you know, for the whole thing, we were going for that, for that vibe. We wanted it all to feel very alive. And, uh, and, you know, we're just in a, we recorded the whole thing in a Foley studio. So it's like not a teeny tiny sound booth for one person, but like, eh, probably a little smaller than the average living room. And, you know, we would stage the scenes with the actors and, and uh, Chase would usually be holding the actual audio recorder that we used and pointing it around. 
or oh, we that's, figure out that's where, cool. would he, where, where would he put it? Because we want you know, if they're supposed to be walking, we'd have them walk in place. And the scene where Shane Mueller chased him out of his mother's house and gets to his car, they're literally running across the, the uh, stage and, you know, kind of getting, making it as physicalizing it as much as possible. So it sounds real. You know, oh, that's right. Well, to me, that's the first mistake you could make doing something like this is that you, is that, you know, you have people like sitting in a comfortable chair reading script pages and, you know, giving you pristine audio. <laughs> like it, the audio won't be that pristine. And yeah, that means you can't wind it back and take the, like if, if he's shaking the device and you're getting a mic shake sound, you can't dial it back. Although we really could because where we recorded it, Iceman Studios, they also put a lavalier mic on them. They also had a boom right. mic on them. So, <clears> right. so you had redundant options. You could control it. Yeah. But I'll say this now having done it, like a hundred percent of the audio of him, like in a space or Mark or Tamara in a real space talking to someone was recorded on that. The only thing we used the labs for were uh, phone calls. Um, oh, really? And then his interview stuff was, was all done on a boom. Yeah. That's really cool. I want to ask one more yeah. question and then I'll let you get back to your, uh, your vacation there. Um, if you you got the next phone call from Shutter, and they said, "Hey, we want to try something else. You know, we you have this other idea we like. What do you think you might do differently um, about the next production? Presuming they wanted to start with audio again, uh, that would set you up better for bringing it to life elsewhere as an as an extended universe." Um, well, in terms of creating extended universe kind of stuff. I mean, I, I don't know because we haven't had the opportunity to extend this universe, so I don't know what uh, I, I don't I don't know what rakes we're going to step on inevitably as we try and extend it. You know, the the thing about it too is it's like you know you have the extended universe, you have the mythology, but also you have like what is a podcast in in and of itself, and like which ones work. And you know, this is subjective because you know there are podcasts that I can't stand that people love, and you know, podcasts I love people can't stand at all. So, you know, Mike Manello and, and Nick Braccia and uh, our producer, Liam Finn and Bob DeRose and I, you know, we're constantly talking about this. To me, podcast is about point of view. Um, and so it's really hard to do kind of an old timey radio play and some work and some don't. Like you could say that Homecoming is kind of an old timey radio play modernized um, very well. Um, but I, I actually feel like Homecoming relies heavily on point of view because it's like recorded evidence and phone calls. It's like like there's a sourcingness to all the audio. It's right. not just you know. So, so to me, I guess like the, the thing is like if you're gonna so, so so the question is how do you how do you take Video Palace for instance? Like if someone said, hey, let's make a movie out of Video Palace. Well, is the main character a podcaster? Do we make a movie about Mark Cambria doing this podcast or do we set another part of the world in, in, in that theoretical movie or whatever, you know, cause to me, podcasting is just such a very, very specific thing. You know what I mean? Um, so th those are the concerns that I have now, but again, like having not had the opportunity to extend it into another thing, I, I will say that like I have experience with Blair Witch, especially taking the mythology and turning it into other stuff. And not only did I do the stuff that I was talking about earlier, but I was actually like on the payroll at Artisan for a while, kind of keeping the mythology correct and, and consulting. And so they did comic books. They did kind of standalone um, books by a guy named Dave Stern. Who's a oh, yeah, writer. yeah. They did a series of young adult no novels. 
they like they really kind of you know the word transmedia wasn't being batted around then and now it's unfashionable again but um but they really did kind of a transmedia campaign with that where it was like you know including the website like you know the website was was just a new addition but you know comic books and young adult novels and all the other things those were all kind of de rigueur and um you know i kind of saw how that worked so you know like if we were to tell a movie do we tell the mark cambria story as a movie or would we find another facet of the story because i feel like there's a lot more to explore although you know chase williamson is uh he was the lead in uh in john dies at the end oh yeah okay i i was i was giddy with excitement i'm not even slightly exaggerating giddy to work with chase like yeah believe how lucky i was to get to work with chase and you're yeah he, he was very he was very good in both those things um but you're raising a good question about authorship and point of view does it have to be told from mark's point of view if it was if it was done as a television show or could it be done as a third person show where we're just following him and does he have to be a podcaster or could he be just someone that becomes obsessed yeah. with it in some other way right or does the Mark Cambria story just become backstory to whatever the next thing is, which is, you know, right. It's I a mean, platform. That's, that's at that how, yeah. I mean like, you know, when you look at the, if you look at the mythology of Blair, Witch before the three main characters showed up in the first movie, you know, there, there was a mythology that had been going on again for, you know, over 200 years. Um, do, you know, does Mark Cambria then become part of the mythology? Yeah. how, how much do you have a comment on itself or do you just throw it away, throw the podcast away or I shouldn't say throw it away, but pretend that the podcast didn't exist and tell the Mark Cambria story a different way. You could do that. Um, right. You know, uh, you know, but you could also go back in time and tell the Thurman Bueller story. There's like, you know, there's, it, it's a story about obsession and, and collectors and collector culture that, uh, you know, I feel like you could have permutations that go into different things. Could you have a different story that Mark Cambria somehow shows up in, you know, like there's, there's a lot of ways you could take. And, you know, the the one thing that I think you have to assume is like, if we made a TV series, you can't assume anyone watching it is listening to the podcast. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's a question that we're just sort of beginning to bat around now because I I know that uh, Shudder is interested to hear if we have some ideas, but that doesn't mean they'll, you know, who knows what they're going to do. It's, uh, they're going to do what's whatever is best for their network. But it's the kind of thing where like all of us who worked on this, we really had a great experience making it. And I would say of the things I've made, it's one of the things that came out closest to what I wanted it to be. You know, like I didn't have to adjust my expectations as I went along very much. Oh, that's cool. Um, it, yeah. I mean, I mean, look, there's nothing wrong with adjusting your expectations. Like, you know, wh- whether you're directing a movie or a theater play or whatever, like, you know, you kind of have to let it be whatever it's going to be. And, but this, we were able to kind of hone in on, we, we knew where, where it was changeable on the edges, you know, like specifically like the written dialogue was going to change. We knew that. Um, but, you know, like the story itself kind of came together the way we hoped and, you know, and people, you know, the, the response has been, uh, you know, amazing. I've, I've been really happy with the way, you know, horror fans such as myself like i'm trying to make stuff that i would like you know something that i would listen to and and i listen to a lot of podcasts but also and i'm I'm sure a lot of podcast listeners have the exact same experience it's like if it doesn't hook you you just don't you know it's free it's not really that invested you just yeah exactly you just tap out of it yeah 
Well, I think uh, the work speaks for itself, but um, I, I did really enjoy it. And I think uh, if, you, if you have time, if you're listening to this, you should listen to uh, Video Palace. You'll really dig it. Um, thank ben, thank you so much for making time for us. Absolutely. Thank you for asking. Hey, where can people find you online? I mean, I found you on uh, Twitter, but uh, anything else you want to send people to? Uh, uh, well, I do have a website. It's just benrockonline.com. And right now, the only, I mean, I do have Video Palace on there, but I don't have any more information. Like, I basically just have a link that takes you to, uh, I think, the iTunes page or, uh, no, I think it takes you to a, web, a website that we built that kind of has, you know, for the, for those of us, for the group of us that made it. Um, but you can, I'm benrockonline.com. I'm on Twitter at Neptune Salad. I'm on Instagram at Benjamin underscore rock because I didn't think this Instagram thing would really keep going. So <laughs> I took the lamest name I've ever. And you know, I'm on Facebook. I'm, I'm, I'm all the stupid social media places you can be. I'm not I'll link, just, uh, I'll definitely link to your site and to, uh, to iTunes so people can hear this. Cool. Cool. Thank you. I will, I will tweet it out myself. You're the man. All right. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course, man. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. Sure thing. Anytime. So long.